morning. Thanks for joining us today. I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith Covenant Church. And today is our fourth week of a series that we've been doing called Like a Good Neighbor. And in this series, we have been talking about what it looks like to take Jesus's command to love your neighbor seriously. And so far, we've talked about who your neighbor actually is. We've talked about dealing with that really difficult issue of having enough time to intentionally love your neighbor. Last week, Pastor Mike talked about how we can trust in Jesus and live beyond our fear of loving our neighbor. And this week, we are going to get into the nitty-gritty of how to love our neighbor. Uh, But before we do that, we're going to take just a minute or two, and we're going to pray for all of our graduates this morning. Lord, we are so incredibly thankful for the young people that you have given to our church to care for and to walk with. Watching them grow up and mature and gain knowledge and wisdom is a joy for us, God. And so we just are expressing our thanks and gratitude. We do want to lift our graduates up to you, whether they're graduating high school or college. They are at a transitional moment in their life. So, Father, we're asking for a few very specific things. One, we pray that you place them in community that values you wherever they end up whether it's college or moving away to pursue a job, help them find a faith community, a church, bring wise mentors into their lives to help them understand what it looks like to walk faithfully with you during these new times. Lord, if they're looking for employment, help them find uh, a place that's going to be a good fit that builds in them confidence and skills and understanding so they can have a productive career. Lord, if they're moving away to college, we ask that you give them good friends who are the right kinds of influences in a transition that's not too chaotic, but instead helps them find uh, joy and comfort in their new living situation. And Lord, we pray that you use them where they go, that you may send them as missionaries into their new context to help people discover you, help them be witnesses at school and at their jobs and in their new living places. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here's a question for you. Anyone ever had a neighbor who would just do a bunch of weird stuff? Anyone? A couple of you are willing to admit it? Well, when Meredith and I were looking for our first house that we bought together, our realtor told us that everyone has at least one neighbor that does a bunch of weird things, and we quickly found out that that was 100% true. Because we bought our house, and as it turned out, one of our neighbors loved to grill. That's not the weird part. The weird part is she put her charcoal grill on her front porch, leaned up against the house, and it was a covered porch. She would go out there and she'd pour her lighter fluid all over it, and she would take out her match and, whoom, you know, big flames, black marks up the siding of her house, smoke stains on the underside of her porch roof. I haven't even told you the weird part yet. She would do this while wearing her personal oxygen mask. <laughs> we, I could not look away. We were like, she's going to explode in a ball of flames. Most of us 
we have had a weird neighbor. And for those of you who are like, no, all my neighbors are great. I want you just to maybe consider. (laughs) Just maybe. If you are that weird neighbor. You could be. You could be. (laughs) But, uh, hey, most of us, we try not to be the weird neighbor. And for the most part, we understand what it looks like to be a good neighbor. We mow our lawns. We don't play our music too loud. We don't let our dogs defecate in our neighbor's yard. We keep our house up at least to the standard of the houses around us. Most of us have a general idea of what it looks like to be a good neighbor. But when it comes to being a loving neighbor, sometimes that's a different story. Because when it comes to trying to live out Jesus' command to love our neighbor, we don't always know where to start. My senior year in high school, I landed a job interview at a bicycle shop. And for the interview, they took me back into the workshop. They had this big box full of bike parts, and they said, build this. So I opened up this giant cardboard box full of bike pieces all tied together and waiting to be built. And I said to myself, where do I even start? I had no idea how to build a bike. I enjoyed riding my bike. I wanted to be a good bike mechanic, but I didn't have any experience building something like that from scratch. I had no concept of where I should even start. And I think that's sometimes what it can feel like when we think about Jesus' command to love our neighbor. We want to love our neighbors, But when we look at the people that God has placed around us, we think, what do I say? How do I love them well? Where do I even start with this? So if that's you today, and you aren't even sure where to start with loving your neighbor, I am glad you're here because that's exactly what we're talking about. Our goal today is to create a very practical framework that you can use in your everyday life to help you be more intentional about loving the neighbors that God has placed around you. Now, just as a disclaimer, I am not going to give you a complete description of everything the Bible teaches about how to radically love your neighbor. Instead, today, our goal is really simple. We're going to look at a few stories from the life of Jesus that give us a glimpse into the very normal ways that he tried to love people as he went about his everyday life. When we read the stories of Jesus, sometimes it's easy for us just to like focus on the miraculous or the theological things. But if you look at his life, there are a lot of extremely simple and ordinary ways that he loved people around him. And by looking at these ordinary ways, we're going to come up with a straightforward framework for how we can try and love those that God has placed in our lives. And what we're going to see is that we can love our neighbor by trying to bless them. And yes, the word bless is going to be an acronym to help you remember all of our points, because what's a good sermon without an acronym, right? Now I need to mention today's content leans really heavily on a book by Dave and John Ferguson called Bless. So if you're sitting there and you're like, man, this sounds really familiar, it's probably because you've heard it before because someone else plagiarized from that book before I did. And so uh, just know a lot of our content is coming out of that book. It's titled Bless. If you want to go deeper, you can read that for yourself. All right, you guys ready to look at some stories of Jesus? I was kind of hoping for a better response there. (laughs) You guys ready to look at the stories of Jesus? Uh, uh, All right, there we go. 
Our first story, it comes to us from Luke chapter 6. And in this story, Jesus is still pretty early in his ministry. He's begun to teach a little bit. He started to get a few followers around him. But the time has finally come for him to ramp up his ministry. He's going to choose his 12 core followers. He's preparing to give some of his biggest sermons. He's about to strike out on the road and travel a bunch. But before he does this, before he chooses his 12 core followers and really gets ready to kick things off, he goes up on a mountainside and he spends the night praying to God. This is what it says. One of those days, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them who he also designated as apostles. Here's what I want you to see. We should not undervalue the role of prayer when it comes to our efforts of loving others. Jesus, he's getting ready to launch into his ministry of loving and teaching and healing and saving humanity And he knows that he's got some big things to do, like choose his 12 disciples. So he makes sure to take a little bit of time in advance, go up on the mountain and pray to God. Because he understands the importance of prayer when it comes to leading and loving and serving the way that God wants us to. A great practice when it comes to loving our neighbors is to begin with prayer. Here's what beginning with prayer does for us. For starters, it helps us work on the state of our heart towards our neighbor. Because here's the reality. Not every person that God places in your life is going to be easy for you to love. You know how I know this? Because I'm not always easy to love. And I'm guessing you're not always easy to love either. Jesus says this about people who aren't easy to love. He says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When we take time to pray for our neighbor, it helps us have the type of attitude that Jesus wants us to have towards them. Here's a great example. I was talking to one of my college friends recently, and he has an especially obnoxious neighbor. His neighbor has some really loud dogs that he leaves out day and night, and they bark at every squirrel, car, mouse, bird, human, blade of grass. You, you get the picture. Not only that, but they don't really keep up a, uh, their house very well, and they like to air their dirty laundry for the entire neighborhood to hear. So it's one of those neighbor situations where my college friend is like, yeah, I just don't necessarily automatically want to love my neighbor. So he went to his pastor, and his pastor encouraged him, every time you feel yourself wanting to complain about your neighbor, you should pray about them instead. He said that this has actually been an amazing practice, because by praying for his neighbor regularly, he's started to have an attitude adjustment, and God has really started to open up all of these different ways that he can try and serve and love his neighbor instead of complain and be bitter. When we pray for our neighbors, it helps us have the right attitude towards them. But prayer also does something that, if I'm honest, I can't explain. When we pray to God to give us opportunities to love our neighbor, he gives them to us. I'm sure you have tons of stories yourself. When we ask God to give us opportunities, he just does. So if you want opportunities to love your neighbor, 
beginning in prayer is one of the best places to start. So when you're thinking about loving your neighbor, begin with prayer. Now, a little while later in Jesus's life, this story happened. This is coming from Luke chapter 18. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him, told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now, the second way we can practically love our neighbor is by healing them. Oh, I was hoping you guys would be shocked and think that was hilarious. I'm kidding. I don't expect you to like go home and lay hands on your sick neighbor and cast the sickness out of them. Uh, There's something else in this story that I want you to see. Put yourself here in this story. Jesus, he's heading to Jerusalem. He's now a well-known teacher. People are starting to think that he might even be the new king of Israel who's going to free them from the oppression of the Romans. So he's making his way to Jerusalem, and he makes a stop in Jericho to do some teaching. But as they walk into the city, they hear a man yelling for Jesus, a beggar, a man who has no sight. And he's yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the people who are traveling with Jesus, they think, hey, Jesus ain't got no time for this. He's got places to go, people to impress. So the people in Jesus' caravan they rebuke the beggar. They're like, hey, stop talking. Get out of our way. Be quiet. We don't have time for you. But Jesus stops, and he has the man brought to him, and he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? This is a weird question. It's a super weird question. I mean, this man has been reduced to begging because of his blindness. He now lives his life on the side of a road, begging people to help him by giving them anything that they can because he cannot provide for himself. He has no independence, no hope of a different future. And of course, he's probably heard about Jesus healing people. What does Jesus think that he wants? To be healed, of course. So Jesus, being busy and important, he could have just snapped his fingers along the way and given this man his sight. But instead, he stops and asks a question and takes the time to listen to this man. Stopping and listening, it's as much a part of the way that Jesus loves here as is healing this man of his blindness. David Augsburger once wrote, that being heard is as close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Taking the time to listen 
is one of the best ways that we can show love to others. So how do we listen well? Well, to answer that question, we might want to first start by asking what keeps us from listening well? And two things become a major issue for most of us. The first is distractions. You know, sometimes we end up being distracted by really, really legitimate things. Uh, Something stressful is happening in your life. You can't help but think of it while someone's talking at you. But most of the time, maybe it's our phone or we get interested in uh, what someone else is saying in a conversation near to us, or maybe it's our phone, or, or we see a bird and we're like, I wonder what kind of bird that is, or maybe it's our phone, uh, or we're thinking about our to-do list, or did I even mention sometimes our phones are a distraction for us? <laughs> Distractions, they keep us from listening well. But another deeper thing that keeps us from listening well is when we're more focused about how we want to respond to a person than what that person is actually saying. I love the saying, it goes like this, the opposite of listening is not speaking, it's waiting to speak. Anyone willing to admit that they do this sometimes? I do. Thinking more about how we want to respond to someone actually keeps us from being a good listener. So what do we do to be a better listener? Well, we can start by limiting our distractions. Put your phone in your pocket. Try not to look at that squirrel running across the parking lot. Ignore the people who are having a conversation next to you. And then simply pay attention. You're like, oh, James, I was looking for something more detailed than that. But it's the truth. When it comes to listening, simply paying attention makes all the difference. And you know what? It helps when you show the person that you're paying attention to. Lean into it. Make eye contact. Use your body language to show that you're being attentive. And if you're not clear about what that person's saying, you can always ask a clarifying question. I read this week that listening is not a hard skill to master, but when we don't do it often, we actually start to lose our listening skills. In other words, the less you listen, the harder it becomes, but the more you listen, the better you get at it. So the way to become a better listener is simply by trying to listen more. So to love our neighbors well, we can begin with prayer, we can listen, and this one is my favorite, we can eat together. Anyone like to eat? Yes, me too. Me too. Check out this story from uh, Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Some of the significance of this passage is lost without the greater context So let me just explain this a little bit. 
Jesus, at this point in time, he's well into his ministry, and he had found himself in a conflict with a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. There's a lot that goes into this conflict, but really we can distill it down to this. The Pharisees believed that the Jewish people were being oppressed by the Roman Empire because the Jews weren't following God like they should. So the Pharisees, they had determined that they would teach, encourage, and legislate a strict observance to a set of rules meant to enforce the Jewish law, and they also had a distinct commitment to separate themselves from any Jewish person who lived a life obviously contrary to that law. The idea was that if they enforced God's law and if they pushed the sinful out of the mainstream society, they could create a better situation between Israel and God. And so what you ended up with was a bunch of people in society who by choice or from structural inequality issues that were excluded by the Pharisees. Tax collectors, people who were caught in adultery or fornication, people who were forced to have ritually unclean jobs. The Pharisees had pushed them to the edge of society and had labeled them as sinful. Now, Jesus, instead of avoiding these people like the Pharisees did, he did one of the things that brings people together the most. He sat down around a table and ate with them. Now, these Pharisees, they see Jesus doing this, and they go to Jesus' disciples, and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, they're saying, why does your teacher eat with those people? Doesn't he know that those people are the root of our problems. Here's a detail I love about this story. The Pharisees ask that question to Jesus' disciples, and who answers them? Jesus does. He's like, hey guys, I can hear you over there. <laughs> you know, I, I'm able to understand what you're saying. And he responds, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's basically saying, I eat with these people because I came to love these people. And the simple act of sitting down around a table and eating and talking and sharing, it is a powerful way that Jesus shows them, I am here for you. I care about you. I want to give you time and get to know you. By eating with them, Jesus is saying, I love you. I care about you. Henry Nouwen, he picks up on this idea and he says, when we invite friends for a meal, we do much more than offer them food for their bodies. We offer friendship, fellowship, good conversation, intimacy, and closeness. So if you want another great way to love your neighbor, a really easy way to do it is to find some time to eat with them. There's a lot of excuses we use for not doing this, and I'm on, if I'm honest, I'm kind of the king of excuses when it comes to not finding time to share meals with others. You know, I don't have time. My house is messy. There's stains on the carpet. I'm so busy, and my relational gas tank is running on empty. So here's the incredibly important thing to remember. If we want to do this, we actually have to prioritize it into our schedule. So take some time Look at your calendar each month 
then just choose one or maybe two times in advance that you can prioritize lunch or dinner or breakfast or coffee or dessert or donuts or anything. Mark those times down and start asking people to join you. Because eating with others is a great way to show them love. So, so far we've got begin with prayer, listen, eat, our acronym so far is BLE, and now we're going to add our first S, we can serve them. This is one of the mainstays of Jesus' teaching. The life Christians are called to is a life of service to others. Check this out. This is John chapter 13. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray, Je- to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Skip ahead to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Just let the words of this passage sink in a little bit. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Think about that. Jesus knew how powerful he was. He is God. He knew that everything that had ever been was there because of his acts of creation. And he knew no one ever had nor ever would have his wisdom, his knowledge, his power. At a snap of a finger, he could heal, kill, change the state of matter. He is the all-powerful king of the universe. So what does the all-powerful king of the universe do? He gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer clothing. He wraps it around his waist. And after that, he pours water into a basin and begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is one of the last meals prior to the resurrection that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. So how does he show them how he feels towards them? He serves them. Something we miss reading this in the 21st century is that by taking off his outer layer of clothes and wrapping a towel around his waist, Jesus is basically adopting the uniform of a household servant or slave. And then he does the very thing a household servant or slave would do. He washes his disciples' feet. And after doing this, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Serving is not only one of the best ways we can show love to others, it's actually the life that we have been called to. So how do we do this? Well, it's important to recognize that every act of service doesn't have to be a major thing. Some acts are small. They could be writing a card to someone. Some acts are big. Maybe you're paying an expensive bill for someone else. But to serve, you always need to do the following. First, you have to be observant. You have to pay attention to what's going on in people's lives. What are their needs physically, spiritually, emotionally? Is there one of those needs that you can help with? Maybe they have kids and you can invite their kids to come and play with your kids so that that afternoon they can have an emotional recovery afternoon. Maybe your neighbor's having a harder time getting around and could benefit from you shoveling or mowing. Maybe the person's lonely and they just need you to show up and listen. But you won't know unless you begin with being observant. And then the second step, you got to do something. Observing isn't enough. You actually have to take some action. Now, will everything you try work all the time? Absolutely not. Let's just be real clear. I don't want an email this week where you're like, Pastor James, I tried to do something and my neighbor yelled at me. Sometimes it's not going to work. But a lot of times it is. And the more you try to act like a servant, the more you're going to develop a servant's heart and the more you're going to learn how to use your servant's hands. So, serve. We can love our neighbors by beginning in prayer. We can love our neighbors by listening. We can love our neighbors by eating with them and serving. And finally, we can love our neighbors by sharing our stories. One of the most powerful things that we can do is share our story with others and give them space to share theirs with us. A great example of this is the story of Jesus and the woman of the well. And just before you balk at this, it's not a one-to-one example. We're not Jesus. We're not going to know people's stories before they share them. But this is how the story goes. John chapter 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked for a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. 
I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvations from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father and the Spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, and he. Now, this is a really complex story, really complex But there's something simple here that I want you to see. Through this interaction, Jesus, although he already knew the woman's story, he was able to find out a lot about her. She's at the well midday when no one would be there. She's a Samaritan and obviously feels the tension between Jews and Samaritans. He finds out that she has a complicated religious experience being told by Jews one thing and by Samaritans another. She's been married five times and she's now in some sort of sexual relationship with a man who's not her husband. And you might worry that by finding all of this out would make her feel guilt and shame in the presence of Jesus. But instead, Jesus responds to her by sharing something deep and meaningful about himself. He says, I'm the Messiah, the Christ. Come to help people worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He doesn't speak to her condemnation. He doesn't invalidate her existence. Instead, he gains a deep knowledge of her, and then he shares a deep knowledge of himself. In fact, this is the first person in the book of John that Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah. And what effect does this have on the woman? Well, she leaves the place, she leaves her water jar, and the woman goes back to the town and says to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She can't help but go and tell people about her experience with Jesus. Now, like I said, things are obviously different between us and Jesus. We're not the Messiah. We haven't come to save the world. But getting to the place where we learn people's stories and then where we can share our story with them, this is an amazing way to love our neighbor. It is a powerful thing. Hearing people's stories and allowing them to hear ours, it's a part of showing love. Now, how do we do this? Three suggestions. You can start by asking. It is okay to ask people about their life. You can start by asking people about their current story. Where do you live? How long have you been there? Tell me about your family. And as you develop a relationship, you can start to get deeper 
and hear the more vulnerable parts of their story. Second, don't force it. We're not Jesus. We don't know people's history. And sometimes our history is painful. So as you get to know people, take the temperature when it comes to finding about their story. But realize that as you get to know them more and you create a safe space for them to share about their lives, they're going to feel loved. And then finally, don't forget to include Jesus in your story. Letting people know about how Jesus plays a role in your story, it is a part of your life, and you should tell people about it. Now, hopefully you can see the acronym. We're going to put it all together for you here. Our framework for trying to intentionally love our neighbor, it goes like this. You can begin with prayer. You can listen. You can eat. You can serve. You can share stories. And here's my suggestion for how you can put all this together. Last week, Pastor Mike, he asked you to think of the first person or two that comes to mind when you think about a neighbor that God has placed in your life. And he asked you if you were willing to act in faith rather than fear with that person. And today, I want you to think about that same person or same couple of people that you thought about last week. The first few people that come to mind when you think of your neighbor. And I want you to ask these questions to yourself. How can I be praying for them? How am I going to find a way to be a good listener for them? When, in the next month, can I invite them to eat with me? Is there a way that I can try to be serving them? And what's their story? And how can I share with them mine? It doesn't have to be super complicated. You don't have to do all of this at once. I'm not expecting you to go home this week and be like, all right, I got my blessed acronym. I'm going to find Joey. And dang it, Joey, this week we're praying, listening, eating, serving, and sharing. Doesn't have to be like that. We do these things over a long period of time, but they are a very simple framework for us to intentionally try and love people in the same sort of ordinary ways that Jesus did. Church, we are called to love our neighbors and a great way we can do that is by trying to bless them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving an example of what it looks like to love people. We know that you loved in much more radical and amazing ways. God, help us start here, though. Help us start by listening, eating, praying, serving, sharing. And when you give us those opportunities to give up ourselves like you did, help us take them. Lord, we're asking that as a church, we can be a church known for our ability to love well. So keep reminding us, Lord, to intentionally bless those that you put in our lives. Pray this in your name. Amen.